Last week we finished up a series, uh, So Many Questions, and Alice, in a, in a really great teaching, addressed some of those questions. One of the questions was, you know, you know the, why is the Bible so hard to understand? And I think, I think we would all say that that's true. I think one of the reasons that the Bible is so tough is because of the names of the people in the Bible. You realize that the name Fred is not in the Bible even once? Once. So I was thinking today, maybe we could vote on what name in the Bible we think is the weirdest. So you ready to vote on this? Here's our first um, option. Ashurbanipal. How many vote for Ashurbanipal? Any? Okay, how about this? Maharshala Hasbaz. That got a few. Here's the next one. Ishbibinab. Kind of nice flow to it. Maybe as a middle name rather than first name. Here, um, Ashdoth Pisgah. Any takers for Ashdoth Pisgah? One of my personal favorites, Zerubbabel. And you can, and you can add as many syllables to that as you want. Zerubbabel. And it just, it just keeps kind of going like that. I should maybe mention a principle that will be helpful to you. You know, if you're called in at some point to read scripture out loud, and one of our concerns always is that we're going to come to some name like this that we can't pronounce. The principle is, if you just read it loudly and confidently, no one is going to know whether you got it right or not. Nobody. Okay, here's the next name. Og. How did that get in the Bible? You can actually spell it and pronounce it. Um, and one more, and this is my personal favorite, uh, Mahishbosheth. Mahishbosheth. Actually, it's Mahishbosheth that we're going to be talking about today because we're starting a new series, uh, Storytellers, and I get to tell you a story that involves this uh, young man in the Old Testament, Mahishbosheth. So... Um, I just want you to pray with me for a minute as we as we get into this. Lord, uh, just thank you that the stories in the Bible are true stories, that they're written about real people and real experiences, and that you not only had them written and recorded, but you preserved them for us so that we could learn from them, and I would hope that would be the case today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going back to the time of David in the Old Testament, and I'm hoping that a lot of you can mentally place um, the time of David, because we learned a couple Old Testament dates when we were going through that before. Abraham at when did he live? 2000 B.C. and David at 1000 B.C. So we're going back to about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And um, this is actually before the time of Saul or David or Solomon, those first kings of Israel, time when they're still judges and, and Israel's kind of loosely confederated. And um, they're in battle against the Philistines. And uh, so they, somebody gets a bright idea, let's take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us, and surely then God will give us the victory. Now, you remember the Ark of the Covenant, in fact... I sort of hate to say it, but maybe the best way to picture it is from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember how it's pictured there, this golden chest? And um, that's pretty accurate, the way it actually was in the Bible. So they take the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the promise and the presence of God in the lives of Israel. They take it into battle. They lose the battle. God is not going to allow himself to become some sort of lucky charm, some rabbit's foot that's going to bring them luck in battle. And so the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. 
and they take it uh, to, to, to one of their capital cities where there's a temple to their god, Dagon, who is this pagan idol. And so they, they put the Ark of the Covenant there in front of this idol and almost as if, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is bowing down to this great statue of Dagon. The next day the priests come into the temple, the, the statue of Dagon has fallen over flat on its face as if it's bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. So they raise the statue back up again before anybody comes in. Next day they come in, the Ark of the Covenant has fallen over. In fact, let me read you how this is described. So it says, in the morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Remember Tim talked about God having a sense of humor? This has got to be God at his, uh, at his wittiest. Here's this statue of Dagon and now it's fallen over and its heads and its hands have broken off, you know, and it's as if it's bowing before the ark of the covenant. So while the Ark of the Covenant is there, the town begins to have this outbreak of rats and tumors, it says, growing on them. So they think maybe it's because they've got the Ark of the Covenant and Israel's God maybe is angry at them. So they take the Ark of the Covenant and they take it to one of the other, other cities, the city of Ekron, and they put it there. Same thing happens. They're overrun with rats. People are getting tumors. Nobody wants the Ark of the Covenant. So they decide maybe we need to send it back to Israel. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and they take two heifers who just had... Heifers are the female cows, right? Yes, okay. They take two heifers who've just had baby cows and um, they hook them up to a wagon and they say, now, if this is their God wanting this back, those heifers will head back toward Israel um, and leave their two um, calves behind. And so they watch in wonder as these two heifers head out down the road. Now, there's a, a big valley in uh, Israel called Beth Shemesh. And Sally and I were there, and we were thinking about this story. It's a big uh, agricultural area. They would have been growing wheat and barley then. In fact, it was the harvest season. And they look, and there's this sort of road coming down the, the center of this big valley. And they look, and there they see this thing coming down the road. First, they're not sure what it is. As it gets closer, they realize it's this cart, and they realize that on the cart is the Ark of the Covenant. And the people are thrilled to have it back. And in fact, the, um, the Philistines are so worried that God is upset about this, they actually make uh, rats out of gold and tumors out of gold, and they put those on the cart too just to appease Israel's God. So they take the Ark of the Covenant and they, they put it in a home near that area of a man named um, Abinadad, and, uh, and it stays there for 20 years. 20 years. Now, we jump ahead to the time of Saul and David and Solomon. Saul is this first king who hates David, is afraid of him. He's paranoid. He tries to kill David every chance he gets. David's son is... Excuse me, not David's son. Saul's son is Jonathan. Jonathan and David are best friends. And even though... Jonathan is next in line to be king. He realizes that, that David is the chosen one. And so he makes an agreement with David. I want to read you a couple of verses where it says that. It says, this is Jonathan speaking, but show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Now David does become king and... Uh, he decides to finally bring the Ark of the Covenant 
into the new capital city of Jerusalem. And they bring the cart in, and it says that David goes before the Ark of the Covenant. Remember? And it says he danced with all of his might. He takes off his outer robe. He's probably kind of in this loincloth sort of thing. And he dances before the Ark of the Covenant as they bring it into the, into the city. In fact, it says they took six steps, and then they offered sacrifice. I don't know if every six steps they did that, but apparently the idea is that as they were bringing it into Jerusalem, they're offering sacrifices of praise to God. They're musicians, and David is dancing before the ark of the Lord. What did that look like? What does it mean to dance with all your might before the Lord? I was thinking about that the other day. I saw a commercial for this guy who gets a cheap hotel rate. Have you seen that? And he does his happy dance sort of on top of his luggage. You know? Do you think it's like that? I wish I could see what it looked like. David dances with all his might before the Lord. Now we jump ahead a few more years. God has given peace finally to David. And uh, David is in his palace in Jerusalem, and he asks a really interesting question. Let me read it to you. And this is from, uh, this is from 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asks, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. And the king asked, Is there, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in both feet. That son of Jonathan's, which would make him the grandson of the former king Saul, is Mephibosheth. And it says that Meshibbethath was uh, crippled in both feet. When, uh, when word had come that King Saul and his son Jonathan had been killed, the nursemaid who was taking care of this little boy, the Bible says he was five years old, fears for his life. She knows that if David becomes king, he would probably want to kill all of, the, all of Saul's family. And so she grabs this little boy and she's running away and she drops him and he becomes crippled in both feet. So now David finds out that Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, his friend, grandson of Saul, is still alive. And he sends and asks for Mephibosheth to be brought to the palace. How frightening that must have been for Mephibosheth. I mean, what does he think is going, going to happen when the guards come and bring him to the palace? It would make sense that David could remove the final threat to his throne, the one living relative of King Saul and his son Jonathan, Mephibosheth, execute him, throw him in prison, do something like that. Instead, David brings him into, into his throne room, and he asks if he is indeed the grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan. And then David says, for the sake of your father, you know, I invite you to come and live here with me. And he says, as long as you live, you will eat at the king's table. And he restores to Mephibosheth the lands that had belonged to Saul and to Jonathan that had been taken from him. He supplies all of his needs. He asks some of his own servants to tend the land and to grow the crop and to give the, the, the produce from that to this young man, Mephibosheth. Now, this is a little convoluted, but stick with me here. David is described in a very important way. And I want to read you three verses of Scripture and see if you catch the, the theme of these three. And I think they'll be on the screen here. The first one is 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen. 14. Uh, Samuel, the prophet, is speaking to King Saul, and he says, 
But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then in the New Testament, the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is kind of telling the Old Testament story, and he says this in chapter 13. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. This is God. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And then going back to 1 Kings, to the time of the reign of David's son, Solomon. As Solomon grew older, his wives turned his heart to other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. One of the most amazing things that it says in the Bible about anybody is said about David, and it says he is a man after God's own heart. I, I wish I could say that more than anything else in the world, I desire to be a man after God's own heart. I know, I know that I don't desire that as fully as I should, but when I read that about David, it makes me hunger to be that kind of a man, to have that kind of a relationship with God. A few weeks ago, I was driving back from Cedar Rapids, and I'd gotten off 380, turned on to, to Highway 20 down by the Elk Run truck, Plaza, and that you know they're doing the road construction, and there was so much traffic. And uh, over on the side of the road, there was a young man hitchhiking. And I thought, well, what a terrible place to be hitchhiking. It was hard to move. It would have been hard to pull off the road. Um, but I did. I pulled off the road, and this young guy comes running up to me, and he throws his um, bag in the in the back seat, and he gets in next to me. Um, his name was Chris. And he said he'd been feeling really good about hitchhiking. He said he'd gotten stranded in Iowa City. I don't know exactly what that meant. But he said, he, so he started hitchhiking and he was really pleased because he'd made it up to, to Elk Run uh, Heights in only three hours. And then he said he spent the next 24 hours at the truck stop going to trucker after trucker, driver after driver, asking if they would be kind enough to give him a lift and nobody would. And so after 24 hours of no sleep and no food, he had a dollar and some change was all the money he had. He finally gave up and he went back out on the highway to see if he could hitchhike a ride out there. So um, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to Cedar Falls. You know, how far do you need to go? And he said, well, just take me as far as you can take me. So I said, well, I can take you a little ways anyway. And we began to talk. He was on his way to Montana so I was feeling sorry for him, and I said, well, I'll take you all the way to Highway 14, and there's kind of a truck stop there, and you can uh, maybe get a ride there. So we rode along mostly in silence. Chris wasn't a big talker. I'm not a big talker, and you get two introverts who don't know each other together in a car. It's a <laughs> kind of a quiet ride. And as we're riding, I think... I, I, wish some, I wish there was some way I could let Chris know that I'm doing this for Jesus I'm doing this because Jesus said, if you do this for the least of these, my brothers, you're doing it for me. I, I didn't know how to raise the subject. So we got out to Highway 14, and I said, you know, I can let you out here on the highway. I can take you down, you know, to the truck stop down there. And he asked me to take him down there. So we got there and um, shook hands, and he said thank you to me. And then I said, uh, if, it, if it wouldn't make you too uncomfortable, uh, would it be okay if I prayed for you? And he said, uh, okay. So I just prayed this, you know, like three or four sentences. You know, God, 
keep Chris from harm, don't let anybody hurt him, help him to connect with the, the right people so he can get a ride home quickly, protect him, bring him home safely. Amen. You know, something like that. So I finish the prayer, and I look over, and Chris is wiping his eyes, and he's crying. So I didn't know what, what to do, uh, if I was supposed to say something. So Chris gets out of the car, and then he turns around, and he leans back in the car, and he's crying. And he says, in my whole life, nobody has ever prayed for me before. That, that touched me really deeply. Because I think there's probably never been a day in my life when somebody hasn't prayed for me. And here's this guy. How can, how can he know that God loves him? How, how can he respond to Jesus if he feels like he doesn't have a single person in his life who would pray for him? So I ask myself... When Chris is standing out there on the road, you know, with no sleep and no money, does God know that he's there? Does God care about Chris? Here's, here's my answer. I watched a, a program on Nova on public television a few months ago. It was Stephen Hawking, who is probably the most famous current astrophysicist. Uh, and, uh, and he believed that he can prove scientifically that God doesn't exist. So that was sort of the theme of the program. And I say um, there are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Some galaxies, some big galaxies, spiral galaxies, have a trillion stars in them. And the Bible says that God not only placed every star in the sky, but he calls them all by name. Some estimates are that there are 300 sextillion Stars in the universe, I have no idea what that number represents. But I believe that the Bible says that God knows every one of them and calls them by name. And you ask me, does God know that Chris is standing there alone on the side of the road? I know he does. And when Chris thinks nobody has ever prayed for him in his life. So I got to thinking, ah, what if 1,500 people prayed for Chris? I know I'm never going to see Chris again. I'm never going to have any idea what happens in his life. But I know that God loves him and that somehow Jesus is standing at the door of his heart, knocking, waiting to be invited in. What if? What if we prayed for Chris? What might God do? So when I ask myself, what made David a man after God's own heart? I think there are lots of parts of it. But one of the things that stands out to me is that simple question that he asked for Second Samuel 9.1. Is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? What if you did that tomorrow? What if the first thing you said when you woke up before your feet hit the floor, what if you said, God, is there anybody today to whom I can show kindness? Is there anybody today that you would bring into my life so I can be the hands and feet of Jesus, so I can be your heart. Jesus, who could I bless today? Would you be willing to pray with me for Chris? Let's do that. Lord God, I wonder how many people right now there are standing by the roadside of life 
feeling like nobody knows and nobody cares. People like Chris. And God, I can't imagine what it would be like to to think that nobody in your whole life has ever prayed for you. And I know that Chris isn't going to know that there are 1,500 people praying for him today. But I pray, Lord, that somehow... As your people pray together in Jesus' name for Chris, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work in his heart, that you would bring someone into his life who can introduce him to Jesus Christ, that somehow you would create a longing in him to know you and to open up that door of his heart and to invite you in. And I do want so much to be a man after your own heart. Help us. To be like David, to say, God, today, is there anybody that you want me to show kindness to? And may we someday hear those words from Jesus. When you did it for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Well done, good and faithful servant. We are your hands and feet, Jesus. We want to be your heart. Amen.